My name is Ken, and I'm a retired Army chaplain and a PCA teaching elder. It's my privilege to be able to explore God's Word together with you this morning. It's been uh, a week since Jesus first rose from the dead. Eight days when you use the inclusive method of counting that John uses here in his Gospel. The Twelve, which is John's designation for the Apostles even after Judas's betrayal, have seen Jesus, but Thomas, one of the Apostles, was, not, was missing that first Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. We don't know when the remaining disciples caught up with uh, Thomas, whether it was that later that evening or during the following week, but they spoke to him about Jesus' appearance. In our text this morning, from John chapter 20, verse 24 and 31, picks up at that point. Here's the word of God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let us pray. Send your spirit among us, O God, as we meditate on the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. Prepare our minds to hear your word. Move our hearts to accept what we hear. Purify our will to obey you in joy and faith. This we pray through Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, I know there's at least one person here, but I'm going to ask it. Is there anyone here from Missouri, or Missouri, as they like to pronounce it in the state? Yeah, I knew Jan was the one. That's the only one, I think, in the whole church actually came from Missouri. Now, if you've ever lived there or you've visited for any length of time, you would know that the state's unofficial, not official, but its unofficial motto or nickname is the Show Me State. Used to even have it on their license plates, I think, at one point. No one really knows where the motto came from. There are lots of stories out there, but one popular story, and probably the most credible of the stories, ascribes its origin to uh, an 1899 speech by a congressman named Willard Vanderveer, who declared, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton, cockleburrs and Democrats, and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri, and you've got to show me. And that's probably where it came from. But wherever it came from, it is intended to represent the character of Missourians, not gullible, unwilling to believe without adequate evidence. It reminds me of Thomas in today's text. From this one event, described only in John's Gospel, he unfairly gets labeled Doubting Thomas. We talked about that in our Bible study last week. I thought I was going to preach on this passage. And I prefer to think of him as a show-me-state type of guy. Right? 
someone willing to face the facts and honestly and carefully look into things. Remember, it was Thomas who in John chapter 14, verse 5, after Jesus' I am the way, the truth, and the life declaration, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He was suggesting, maybe even a little bit complaining, that Jesus hadn't made things clear enough for him and refused to say that he understood something that Jesus was saying when he didn't. And after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and set his sight to what, was, what he had predicted was a certain death in Jerusalem, it was Thomas in John chapter 11, verse 6, who courageously said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Uh, if he's going to go and he's going to face that, then let us just all go and die with him. So Thomas wasn't a skeptic, someone who, as a matter of principle, deliberately decides to doubt anything or everything. We, we know people like that. I, at least I have in the past. Um, he, he was a traumatized disciple who needed to learn to trust the testimony of his fellows, uh, fellow apostles. For us, that testimony, we're like him in many ways. We need to listen to the apostles' testimony, but for us, that testimony is found in the divinely inspired scriptures, the word of God. What I pray that you take away from this morning and our time together is that when we feel discouraged and doubts are invading our hearts and our minds, uncertainty turns to certainty when we dwell on the apostolic testimony recorded in God's word. So let's take a closer look at this event and what we can learn from it as we consider five things. That just goes to show you that you don't have, not every sermon has three points in a prayer. This one has five smaller points, and it will close in a prayer, but five points in a prayer. And I'll say them twice so you can get it for those of you who are note takers out there scribbling out. The first is Thomas's struggle, Jesus' repentance, re- reappearance, Thomas's confession, Jesus' blessing, and John's purpose. So Thomas's struggle. Jesus' reappearance, Thomas' confession, Jesus' blessing, and John's purpose. As we consider Thomas' struggle in verses 24 and 25, we need to reflect on the context of Thomas' encounter with Jesus. The Bible doesn't present flat, stock characters, but rather real-life human beings with strengths and weaknesses, faith and doubts, struggles, and triumphs. Now Thomas was still recovering from the shock of Jesus' violent arrest, trial, and crucifixion. And sometimes we severely underestimate the trauma of those events upon Christ's followers. In the past several Sundays, we've heard Dennis and Camper talk about some of those scenes of Jesus' arrest and death. But I just don't think we get the impact of what happened. It doesn't grab us, I think. Maybe we've seen some movies like The Passion of the Christ or something where we've seen a violent depiction of what happened on that day, which still don't do it justice, I think, because you just can't capture the emotional power of what occurred for these men. I mean, just three years earlier, they left everything to follow him. They spent every day with Jesus, watching him heal people, hearing him teach, just living life together on the road with each other. And some thought he was the Messiah and that he would soon fulfill God's covenant promise to restore Israel. Others were still trying to figure him out. I think some of the disciples, even to the last week, were trying to figure him out. Who was this man? Then the unthinkable happened. After a triumphant high 
and an entry into Jerusalem the week before, Jesus was suddenly seized, tried, and brutally murdered right before their eyes. Their hopes and dreams were dashed. They were so certain that Jesus' enemies would soon come after them that they locked the doors when they were together. I don't think that was common practice. But the scriptures highlighted in both appearances, I think, to, to show the fact that they were scared, frightened, even after they had seen Jesus once, the second time. So under the circumstances, I would be surprised if we didn't react like Thomas. He's confronted by a group of elated disciples, right? They've, I, I probably didn't capture it in the reading well enough. These people, these guys had to be really elated having seen the, the risen Christ. So they claim that they've seen him. And Thomas is very familiar with the brutality and lethality of crucifixion, which is why he wanted to see the nail marks and the spear wounds. And he knew how deadly crucifixion was as a process. He undoubtedly had seen it other times before. So Jesus was dead and laid in a tomb, and now his fellow disciples were trying to convince him that they had seen him. I can just feel it. Sure, right. Thomas was not going to be taken in so easily again. More than anything else, I think, this statement, his statement shows a lack of confidence in the judgment and testimony of his fellow disciples. He wasn't able to take them at their word. Maybe they saw a ghost, or maybe they were just hallucinating, but they certainly had not seen a resurrected Christ. Commentator Craig Keener describes Thomas as a disciple eager to follow Jesus, but too devastated by Jesus' death to accept the apostolic witness of his colleagues. And I think that's exactly right. Put yourself in his shoes. There he was. He had been so willing to follow Jesus, but he was so devastated by what had happened in those past few days that he couldn't accept the, the testimony of his fellow disciples. The title of Doubting Thomas is not entirely fair, for if he had been with the disciples during Jesus' resurrection evening of reappearance to them, Thomas would no doubt have confessed Jesus as Lord. He'd been there with the others. But in God's providence, he was not there, so we can learn something about the nature of doubt and faith. So it was while Thomas was in this kind of frightened, confused frame of mind, we just described that John records Jesus' appearance, or reappearance, in verses 26 and 27. As far as we can tell from the text, our Lord suddenly appeared to the assembled disciples that Sunday evening following his resurrection, solely to deal with Thomas's struggles. He appeared under the same circumstances as the week before. The doors were locked. He gives the same greeting of shalom, or peace. Everything was exactly the same, except Thomas was now present. And at first, Jesus offers a relatively general rebuke to Thomas, for, not, for needing to actually see him before he would believe. But I mean, I, I think it's a relatively uh, general rebuke. I think if I were, you know, in Jesus' shoes, I probably would have been a lot tougher on him than just my human nature, unsanctified as it sometimes is, but I would have been a lot harder on him. But Jesus is not. He urges Thomas to stop being faithless, basically. It's a real uh, literal translation of that text. 
And reading this passage, I was reminded of Isaiah's prophetic words and characterization of the future Messiah that's found in Isaiah 42.3, where he writes that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus comes with a gentle touch to minister to those he calls his own. And that should be an encouragement for us when we find ourselves struggling with fate and having doubts about God and his promises to us. We often doubt because we cannot see the whole picture or understand how the various pieces of our experience at the moment relate to one another. But as he did for Thomas, Jesus stands ready to gently shepherd us through our struggles and doubts to bring us to a place of greater faith, a deeper sense of peace, forgiveness, and encouragement. That's how the Lord meets us. I don't know about you, uh, even when the Lord has pulled the rug out from under my feet at times to catch my attention, he always does it with a gentle touch. So confronted by the risen Christ, Thomas makes his confession in verse 28. Now whether it was Jesus' words, which were a supernatural word for word counter to Thomas's early declaration, or the disciples, uh, to the disciples, or simply Jesus' supernatural appearance, which would have been good enough for me, in a locked room. We don't know what it was. Thomas doesn't need to touch Jesus' wounds. Nowhere in the text does it say that after Jesus says, here, put your finger here and touch my marks, that Thomas actually doesn't. He is, as soon as he beholds the risen Christ, he utters the clearest, simplest, and highest confession of Christ's deity to be found anywhere in the New Testament. Five simple words. My Lord and my God. The two words for deity that Thomas uses here are the, the word Lord, the Greek word kurios, which was used by the Greek translators of the Old Testament to translate Yahweh, the covenant name of God, in the Old Testament. And God, in Hebrew Elohim, which is the first word used for God as the creator and judge in, the, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, before the resurrection, Thomas may have been willing and eager to, be, uh, to follow Jesus. He was personally committed to him and to his mission as, as clearly as he understood it. But not a believer in any distinctly Christian sense, but like the gospel writer John, who recorded in verse 8 that Dennis preached about a couple weeks ago, his, his own encounter with the resurrection at the tomb by writing, he saw and believed. In other words, John says he went to the tomb, he saw and he believed. Thomas now saw and believed. And he had a deeper understanding of Jesus' identity. And this amazing confession, as Keener observes, also shows that true resurrection faith requires more than commitment to Jesus. It requires, in addition, the recognition of Jesus' divine role. That is who he is. There are many people in the world who, would, who like the teachings of Jesus and may be committed to the teachings of Jesus in one way or another, but who don't proclaim his divinity, who he is. Thomas, however, fully proclaims Jesus as his Lord and God. And Jesus accepted Thomas's confession, thereby affirming to all who read or hear John's gospel account that Jesus is God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. Jesus then proceeds to pronounce an amazing blessing in verse 29 after doing this with uh, 
with Thomas. So what follows is, is not so much a continuation of a rebuke of Thomas, but rather an encouragement for those, of, uh, those who would come later. Subsequent generations of disciples who would proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, Jesus said to them, says to us, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We are all blessed when, without having seen the risen Lord ourselves, we nevertheless believe in him. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on John, observes that the primary meaning of blessedness is to be looked on favorably, favorably by God. It has more to do with the disposition of God than with our feelings. Oftentimes we think of the word blessed in this kind of a feeling way. And God, that is a result of our being blessed. But it, being blessed in this context really has to do with our being in a right relationship with God. It's not about feeling good. But it's about knowing that who, who Jesus is and being accepted by him. Marie J. Harris correctly concludes that John wishes to show that for generations after Jesus, apostolic testimony in itself is sufficient ground for faith in Jesus Christ. There's no need to repeat Thomas's demand for incontrovertible physical evidence. This encounter between Thomas and Jesus shows a transition from faith based on seeing Jesus to faith based on the apostolic testimony of who Jesus is. Soon a time would come when all who physically had witnessed the death, life of death and resurrection of Christ would pass into eternity. But those of us who were yet first for future would remain and hear the written testimony as recorded for us in the pages of God's word. We have this faith made more certain because as the writer of Hebrews reminds us in the first two lines of his letter, Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We have what God has spoken to us by his son, the living word in God's written word, the highest source of truth we could ever have. It is there in God's word that we encounter the resurrected Christ, and it is through God's word that the spirit works in our hearts and, and we get the benefits and blessings of him and the gospel. And as we mature in our knowledge of God and our trust in his nature, we can declare with Augustine that we do not seek to understand in order to believe. We believe that we may, that we may understand. Believing is seeing. It is not a blind faith, but a, faith, uh, but a belief in what is real. Uh, we live in a world of all kinds of isms, right? Each of which tries to explain the world apart from God in Christ. They tempt us to doubt God's record as an illusion. But in reality, they are the illusion. Only God's word describes the world as it really is from its creation through the tragic consequences of the fall and the outworking of God's redemption to the restoration of all things under Christ yet to come. And as we mature in our faith, our belief will enable us to understand everything through the lens of God's word. We need to remember the message of Hebrews chapter 11.1, 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hoped for things are unseen but they are no less real. 
As Dr. McGrath, who is a scientist and atheist who became a Christian and theologian, aptly puts it, he said, faith is basically the resolve to live our lives on the assumption that certain things are true and trustworthy. And that one day we will know, and that in the confident assurance that they are true and trustworthy, and that one day we will know with absolute certainty that they are true and trustworthy. Verse 29 is a source of comfort for us in another way, too. Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, which was preached about weeks ago, reminds us that we are in the mind and heart of God. Jesus prays for us, the church in that high priestly prayer in John 17. But here again in verse 29, God writes us into the story. And sometimes I think when we read the scriptures, we forget that we are in that story. It's not just those things that happened long ago that are the story. It is a continuing story of God, which we are in right now, which will one day be consummated when Christ returns and sets all things right. But we are written into the story, and this verse in 29 reminds us of that. It's for our assurance, our growth in faith, that God records this story for us in John. I mean, Thomas could have just as easily been with the other disciples on that night before, a week before, but he was not. We are not an afterthought for Jesus. In fact, Paul reminds us of that truth in Ephesians chapter 1, a great chapter of scriptures that talks about all three of the persons of the Trinity and their involvement in salvation. And he writes this, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. We are never an afterthought to Jesus. Finally, in verses 30 and 31, John closes this story and chapter by recording his purpose for writing the gospel. Some call this John's first conclusion. I mean, there is, there is a chapter that Camper and Dennis are going to preach on in two or three sermons uh, in the next couple of weeks that is kind of the epilogue to, this, to the gospel. Um, but it seems almost that the culmination of the gospel comes right here at this point. When John talks about it in the clearest way of any of the gospel, his purpose statement, which happens also to kind of tie in almost every major theme of his gospel. First, John reminds us that a lot more could be said about Jesus' works, but he crafted his gospel under the guidance of the Spirit around select signs that affirm Jesus' identity. And these signs, now captured in God's written testimony, rather than experienced firsthand, point to Jesus as the Messiah and the necessity of believing that he is the divine Son of God. And second, the purpose for selecting and structuring his eyewitness account in the way he did is that we, the readers now, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you might have life. Those of us who now believe, believe because of the testimony of the scriptures. Somewhere, somehow, indirectly or directly, God used his word, the scriptures, to change our hearts through the work of the spirit. And by believing in him, we are promised eternal life, not just in the future, but now. Here near the end of his gospel, John intends for us to have a kind of a same but different sort of feeling. Uh, it's kind of ending up where we started back weeks and months ago with John. From the unforgettable opening lines of his prologue that speak of eternity past and the relationship between the Father and the Son, to Thomas's amazing confession in this chapter, to a vision of, future, of eternity future, 
What John set out to tell us in his gospel has completed, has been completed. In John's record, we have come full circle, if you will. The word was God and dwelled with his people and is now the invisible God made visible in the person of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. We have not seen him, but we have heard testimony of who he is from those who were there, and we have witnessed the impact of his life that changed 11 frightened apostles and a handful of followers to the people that that would eventually create the largest religion in the world. What does this story mean for those of you here this morning who are seekers, that is, who are still not certain about this story that we rehearse in our worship every Sunday and in which we remember us particularly during the season of Lent and Easter. Thomas's story reminds us that there are various ways by which we can know truth. As R.C. Spool points out in his book, sometimes it's through rational deduction which gives us formal truth. Empirical investigation, which gives us the physical evidence by which science makes decisions about reality. And then there is testimony, which includes the record of the past, the witness that is given to us from the pages of history. If you're struggling with that about the identity of Jesus this morning, I would challenge you to test the record of both the reliability of the scripture and its witness. I pick up a book like uh, Evidence that Demands a Verdict. I know we have copies of it in the library. Because God's word will stand the test. Now, often we have doubts because we don't have enough, not because we don't have enough evidence, but because our hearts are not ready or willing to yield. If this is the case, then examine your heart to see what it is that you're holding on to in an attempt to make sense of life, and then test it to see if it really holds the weight of reality. Now, if you're a believer here this morning, this story should be a source of great comfort to you, especially when you find yourself in one of those struggling times of uncertainty or doubt, which, if we're all honest, we have. We often think of doubt as the opposite of belief, when in truth, the opposite of belief is unbelief. Faith sometimes requires the presence of uncertainty. Theologian Alistair McGrath correctly points out that doubt arises in the context of faith. And we should be honest. Sometimes questions expand our understanding. Some honest searching faith produces hope. Nevertheless, while doubt isn't unbelief, it can lead to unbelief. And Dr. McGrath argues that this can happen when, in a couple ways, but when you cling to unrealistic ideas about faith or when you get hopelessly preoccupied with the doubts that are a natural part of the Christian life, or when you fail to allow your faith to grow. Sin can bring doubt into our lives. Oftentimes we try to justify our actions by downplaying the truth that down deep in our hearts we know is true. And the more we do this, the more we open ourselves up to unbelief. And sometimes, Sometimes we doubt because we don't have all the facts. Oftentimes, when our questions are answered, doubt leaves us. And finally, sometimes we can doubt just when life isn't working out like we thought it would. Ever been there? I have. Every Christian has to wrestle at times with doubt, uncertainty, fear, and failure. And this wrestling can actually strengthen our faith 
faith if we face it with confidence in the character of God, whose ways we may not understand at the time, but who always has our greater good at heart. In the end, we need to remember the main point I introduced at the beginning. When we feel discouraged and doubts are invading our heart and mind, uncertainty turns to certainty when we dwell on the apostolic testimony recorded in God's word. As one writer has said, faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. Trust in a God who has shown himself worthy of that trust. The more we know God as he is revealed in the testimony of his word and trust that he is good and loving, powerful and sovereign, the deeper our faith will be strengthened during those times of doubt, discouragement, or struggle. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we may call him Doubting Thomas, but we are a lot more like him than we would oftentimes want to admit. Sometimes the struggles in our life, although it may not have been as unique as Thomas's, still get us to a point of struggle and doubt like his struggle and doubt. So we pray, Father, that you would meet us like you met him with a gentle touch and remind us to turn to your testimony, the testimony of your word, so that we might go from uncertainty, not to some sort of belief that not based on reality, but from uncertainty to certainty based on who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be in the pages of your word and in the experience of our lives. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.